Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading. Hello and welcome along to a brand new episode of the only show that takes you right around the galaxy and brings you back in half an hour. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly. My name's Dan. This is where we search out all of those science secrets lurking through the solar system. And, well, we are heading into space this week and we'll stay up there for quite a while. You can learn about huge plans to play a game of football on the actual moon. An awful lot going on right now to figure out how we're going to get to the moon, how we're going to create a settlement on the moon. So if that's all happening, how can we inspire people to think about life on the moon and, and becoming engineers and scientists and being involved in engineering, which is a big part of the IET? So as the Women's World Cup was this year, we thought, why not combine two really exciting parts of, of, our, of our life at the moment, which is space travel and football and creating Moon United. So we got a panel of experts together and figured out how we could do this. And talking about staying sweaty in space, you can travel to Deep Space High to do some PE. I just don't think I'm cut out to be, well... A rocket scientist. Rocket scientists and astronauts aren't the only people working in space exploration. Whatever your interests are, there's a job in space for you. And I've got your questions this week. They are on colours and how there are more than your eye can see. And what happens if you go to space without a spacesuit? It's all coming up in the brand new Fun Kids Science Weekly. Let's kick things off with your science in the news. And we'll start in space. India has made history as its moon mission becomes the first to land in the south pole of the moon. With this, they become the fourth country to make a soft landing there. It's very important to explore this region. Experts think there could be ice and maybe water on the moon, which will make it handy for using the moon as a space base in the future because water helps make rocket fuel. Also, an insect feared extinct in Britain is set to make a comeback thanks to some brilliant conservation work. The tiny river fly, it's known as a scarce yellow sally, brilliant name, was thought to have died out a few decades ago. Uh, but, a num- a small number were, but a small number were rediscovered in a short part of the River Dee in the UK. So experts launched a proper rescue mission. This curious creature has been bred in captivity at Chester Zoo and they plan to release it back to the wild when rivers are in better health. I love this. We've got so much to think about in the world right now, but small teams of experts are focusing on even those small creatures that you would never really think about. And everything is so important for our ecosystem and biodiversity. And talking about creatures making a comeback, more than 200 water voles have been released at a secret location in the Lake District. It's part of an attempt to create a thriving population of the endangered species. Conservationists and volunteers carried them to their new home in temporary pens that allowed them a few days to uh, get used to it. Ten of the older ones were freed directly into water. They were nearly wiped out in recent decades. The species used to be widespread across the country. It lets you know that us humans, what we do, makes a huge impact to all creatures, no matter how big or small they are, all around the country. So as I say, it's brilliant that scientists are using their power and intelligence to try and bring them back. 
Let's check in with Techno Mum then. She is our gadget genius. She knows all the answers to any tech question that you've got. She knows what's happening, what's happening in the future, what things could be going on. And now this week, we're looking at fingertips and face recognition with Tim and Techno Mum because there are some strange new fingerprint scanners in the library where Tim goes. So we're finding out how they work. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing technology. I think our head teacher must like science fiction movies. Today he told us we're getting fingerprint scanners in the library, the canteen and for registration. Sounds pretty space age to me. Maybe the school trip will be to Mars this year. Hang on, I'll give you the letter about it, Mum. It's in my school bag. Wow, not surprised you lose things, Tim. That bag is like a black hole. Let's have a look. Oh, yes. It's not really that unusual. Even my laptop has a fingertip recognition scanner on it, and I've had it for two years. Just think, you'll never lose a library card or your dinner money again. How many library cards exactly have you lost this year? Loads. Um, not many. It does sound pretty cool. But how can my fingerprint know what books I've got? Or whether I can afford my school dinner? It's like barcodes. The fingerprint just says who you are, and a computer looks up a file all about how much money you've got for dinner, what books you're borrowing, and with registration, whether you're on time or late. Did you make it on time this morning? Just about. I had to run. But how does it work? Do you think it hurts? Of course not. The first thing they do is get a picture of your fingertip. Sometimes this is done with an optical scanner, which uses technology like you'd find in a digital camera. Tiny electronic components sense the dark and light parts of the fingertips and convert them into pixels that make up the image. Other types of scanners take the image using electrical currents. Ouch, that sounds painful. You don't feel a thing. And the electrical current sort are much more accurate. So, they've got a picture of your fingertip, and as you know, they are something that are unique to each of us. So no one else's will be quite like yours. So then once I'm all logged in then, I just put my finger on the pad and off I go. How did it find me again though? There's 2,000 kids in my school. That's a lot of fingerprints. And the computer is cleverer than all of you kids put together. Algorithms are used to work out whose fingerprint is whose. An algorithm? What's an algorithm when it's at home? An algorithm is like a set of rules that the computer uses to check the image. Sometimes it'll perform a calculation using the distances between the parts of the pattern and compare the results to the results on file. Other types of algorithms look at particular areas and match them against all the same area on the library of images. Tilly, turn it down! That sister of yours is as bad as you with volume controls. Anyway, Tim, it all happens in a flash. Hey, that reminds me of something at Dylan's house. His game console can tell who you are by scanning your face. Is that the same technology? Yup. The scanner uses algorithms in the same way. Sometimes it does a calculation using points on your face. Other times it analyses one little piece. You get facial recognition software in all sorts of things. Games, cameras, websites where you upload photos, even at airports. It's a bit weird to think of this information about me all being in the computer somewhere. I know what you mean, Tim. Technology does get into every part of our lives these days. But there are rules about what sort of information can be held about you, especially biometric data. That's things like your fingerprints. And don't you think that technology makes life easier? After all, you can't lose your fingertips, can you? That would be pretty hard. (laughs) Although I am particularly good at losing things, so you never know. Talking of fingertips, they look pretty mucky from where I'm standing. Go and give them a wash before tea. Oh, Mum, they're fine. Don't give me that. 
It looks like you've been foraging in the flower beds. Techno Mum, with the Institution of Engineering and Technology, advancing and sharing technology. Now it's time for my favourite part of the show, where I answer loads of your science questions. Remember, if you have anything sciencey that you want answered, make sure you leave it as a review uh, over on Apple Podcasts. I can see it there. Or my favourite thing that you can do is by dropping it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app. It makes you the star of the thing. So I know your name, so I can hear you speak, and you can record it over at funkidslive.com. Let's get this one from Henry. Hello, my name's Henry. I'm eight years old and I want to know are there any colours of the spectrum that humans can't see and if so how do we know they're there? Well there are loads of colours that we can't see and it's a brilliant point right how do we know that they are there? Scientists think there are about 10 million colours in the world. Us humans can only see about 3 million of them which is amazing 3 million colours but then when you think about it Everything has a colour if you can see them. So why would we notice how many different ones they are? Now, it's particularly hard for me because I'm a little bit colour blind with my blues and my greens. We'll get to why that happens in just a second. The reason that you can see colours is because colours are made of light waves. When light travels down, when it hits an object, say, for instance, uh, a blue wall... The particles that make up that wall absorb all the colours in the light but reflect back the blue light waves so it makes it look blue. Now, us humans, we have three photoreceptors that help us figure out colours. They deal with blues, greens and reds. For my colour blindness, kind of my blue and green ones are a bit messed up. So... I can only see one or the other. One of the photoreceptors saves the other one when it's failing, but when you've got blue and green together, they kind of get all confused. Now, some animals have four photoreceptors, which means they can see loads more colour. Now, the reason that we know there are about 10 million colours in the world, it's because, as I say, uh, colours are made by light waves, by different lengths of light waves, which can be plotted on a computer, tracked and made into a graph. The, the colour and the wavelength can be given a number. We know the range that human eyes can see, but we know that the waves stretch out much longer and have much greater numbers and values so we know there must be more colours. And using studies on animals and smart computer programmes, scientists have figured some of those out what they might be, but because of how our eyes are, we can't really see them. Thank you so much for the question, Henry. There's a lot going on. I hope that explains some of it for you. Uh, this one is from Imogen in Glastonbury, who's left this as a review on Apple Podcasts, who wants to know what exactly would happen to a human in space without a space suit. Exactly... All right then, but it's not pretty. But at least it's quick too. You'd probably die within about two minutes, mostly because space is a vacuum. There's no air or atmosphere in it. Now, due to some very smart science, that means that water boils at a much lower temperature there. It doesn't boil like it gets really hot, but it turns into a gas very quickly. Now, your body is full of water. 
So all the water in that would start to boil quickly. It would turn to gas. Your arms, your legs, your muscles would all start to expand with all that gas that's now in your body. Also, space is really cold. So the water left around your mouth and nose would start to freeze. It would become solid quickly. And because it's a vacuum, there's no air there. You can't breathe, so you'd suffocate. And as I say, you'd die within about two minutes. Good job they made spacesuits then. Thank you very much for the question, Imogen in Glastonbury. If you have anything you want answered next week on the podcast, make sure you leave it as a voice note for me on the free Fun Kids app and at funkidslive.com. It's the Fun Kids Science Weekly and we are heading to space this week where you might need your kit and your shin pads. The Institution of Engineering and Technology have said you could actually play a game of football on the moon in the next 15 years. How on earth or out of this earth can that be possible? Let's find out. Sophie Harker is an assistant chief engineer at BAE Systems and is trying to make it happen. Sophie, thank you for being there. Hi, thank you for having me. It's nice to be here. So we've heard loads about different Mm -hmm. forms of space travel in the last few years. What has made you and the IET start thinking about playing football on the moon? Yeah, so this is very much focused on trying to inspire the next generation. As you say, an awful going on right now to figure out how we're going to get to the moon, how we're going to create a settlement on the moon. You may have heard of the uh, mission Artemis. Um, So we wanted to look at, okay, so if that's all happening, how can we inspire people to think about life on the moon and and becoming engineers and scientists and being involved in engineering, which is a big part of the IET. So as the Women's World Cup was this year, we thought, why not combine two really exciting parts of of our our life at the moment, which is space travel and um, football, and created Moon United. So we got a panel of experts together and figured out how we could do this. Now, the the brilliance of the beautiful game is that you can play it anywhere. You pop down the park, couple of jumpers, you've got your goalposts, you're <laughs> sorted. When you're thinking about playing football on the moon, I imagine it might be a bit harder. What challenges have you had to think about so far? Yes, much, much more difficult, unfortunately. So there are many challenges, even things like how many people do we have playing the game? Because getting astronauts to the moon is quite difficult. So um, how many people do we have playing? How long do they play for? If they're wearing space suits because they can't, you can't go outside just in your shorts and your T-shirt. And when you're on the moon, you still have to wear what we call an EVA suit or an extravehicular activity suit. So we have to be able to have like a full on head to toe helmet and space suit and um, being able to run around in those they're really heavy so you do get very tired and very sweaty very quickly so having to change the format of the game so rather than being done in two 45 minute um, halves it's actually now done in four 10 minute quarters to try and help uh, combat that and things like not needing to carry as much oxygen when you're in such short amounts of time and we've had to think about the equipment itself so for example the ball has to be a lot bigger um, so that we can see it and um, we have to create an entire net all the way around the, the stadium to make sure that when we kick the ball it doesn't fly off because on the moon we've only got a sixth of the gravity that we do on on earth so when we kick that ball it can fly really far away so we have to make sure that we contain it within the game Um, and a bunch of other things like the kit how we're going to referee it there's lots of really complicated questions that we've had to go through and think about Uh, you mentioned the ball needs to be bigger like precisely 1.5 times bigger so we we can see it i I know that it's dark on the moon but it's still getting the sun why could we not see it properly so this is more to do with your visibility in a spacesuit uh. hello everyone i'm Cressida cowell author of how to train your dragon and i'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series which way to anywhere 
It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading! So when you are in a spacesuit, you have a very restricted visibility. So we, we try to design the helmets of the suit so you can see a lot more. However, you can't just look behind you as you're running, for example, as you've got a lot more freedom when you're running without the suit, whereas on the suit, you're very restricted. So being able to have that bigger ball that you can see from your peripherals of your suit is much more important. It also helps a lot with things like shadows on the moon when you're playing at certain times of day. So you have a bit more of an understanding of where that ball is and you're not going to be distracted by sort of changing the shadow patterns and you mentioned gravity there how much thought have we given to the fact that i could cross the ball in Mm. and then you know a a little touch of it and it could float off to jupiter do we have to change the weight of the ball at all yeah so the the ball is um quite a complex part of the, the system so we've had to think a lot about how we're going to almost replicate the sort of the feeling of playing on earth but in that sixth gravity space and the size of the ball is one part the ball will be slightly heavier but it's actually more to do with what it's going to be made of to keep it inflated is more more complicated as there's so little atmosphere and pressure on the surface of the moon that the ball could collapse if you just had an air inflated ball that we have on on earth so we've actually had to change the material that the ball is in it's almost like it's completely stuffed so that it can't collapse as you kick it so there's a lot of really complicated things in that in that simple football that we've had to to address when we think about astronauts in space the the suits they're wearing Mm. are enormous and very clunky now if we get i mean i know that we're playing football on the moon but we want it to be quite a good game how much are we thinking about the different types of equipment that they've got is it normal shin pads is it normal boots have we had to make them with special space materials yes so essentially it it will be a spacesuit so think of it more of a spacesuit than a football kit so it will be a spacesuit so you will have a lunar boot you will have the full what we come to recognize as that white suit that's sort of pressurized and very bulky and thick and the big thick gloves however what we aim to do is to try and make that suit as flexible as possible so we can trade off some of the requirements that you would have for a normal EVA suit so a normal space suit where you need to be able to maneuver and work for very long times you need to carry lots of equipment and therefore you need to carry lots of oxygen and instead what we're doing is having smaller 10 minute quarters so that you can have a more flexible suit that you don't need to wear for as long because you come back inside on those at that, that 10 minute quarter refill your oxygen add in any extra pieces check your suit make sure your suit's okay and then you go back out again so it kind of changes the requirement that you need on your space suit so it can be a little bit more flexible it can be a little bit lighter and you don't need to carry as much equipment or as much oxygen which makes it a lot easier to run around in but it will still be very heavy. It will still be very difficult to move in. So we do have to be cognizant that the astronauts are going to be very, very tired and very, very sweaty by carrying what will be kilograms worth of, of space suit around with them while they play. One of the most traditionally famous parts of a football game is the referee's whistle. 
with sound not carrying really well in space at all, how are we solving that problem of telling the players when the game is starting, stopping and when there's been a foul? Yeah, great question. The, the noise was quite a big discussion we had um, in, in the sort of the expert board was very much talking about the whistled one part, but also the fans. So a lot of football, like the atmosphere is a big part of it. So being able to recreate that. So building in uh, sort of speakers within the helmet. So you would have a comm system anyway to be able to talk to the habitat on the moon as well as talk back down on earth to for for sort of safety reasons just like standard astronauts do so you will always have that very primary important comm system for for safety and understanding what the time is and things like that Um, and speaking to the other players speaking to the referees themselves so there's always a two-way communication and it would just be a case of that the whistle rather than being a actual whistle would be more like a button that the referee would press that would create a noise within within that comm system Um, but it was it's really important that the comm system that we have the communication system is primarily the most important thing is is your astronaut safety so if something went wrong if there was an issue if you know there was a solar flare for example and they all had to run inside that piece of information is more important so even if the referee's talking or even if you know you're trying to talk to a um another player about a penalty or whatever it is that is the secondary and that's not as important as if something is going wrong or there's a safety risk and that will overplay the gameplay if that makes sense and similarly with fan noise if we put some noise in or fans cheering on earth then we can make sure that they have that environment but equally we can turn that down in the case of an emergency now I have spoken to a lot of people uh, doing the podcast and my senses are quite heightened to fantastic ideas which are never going to happen. I once spoke to a, I once spoke to a man who had bought a one-way ticket to Mars and thought he would actually be there by now. But you have sat there with like proper scientists, proper experts and you're talking as if like this is happening. How realistic can it possibly be to play a game of football on the moon? So it is realistic. So it's um I don't want to missell it as you know we're we're creating Moon United and it's something that's really really happening with NASA and ESA and all those things. It's not not quite there yet. But it is something that we've sat through and gone if we were to do this if there was the motivation and the funding in the, in the real sort of space industry to do this. How could we do it? And it's it's definitely possible. And I think that was that's the key conclusion is that it is possible and there are ways to do it. And it would be up to whether we could get the, the motivation and the funding behind um, actually doing something like this. But the key purpose is to inspire and to bring around that next generation of engineers. So but by 2035, you know, that's in 12 years time, there will be people that were looking at this competition when they were between four and 13 and going, actually, I can go and do this now. And I can go and be part of the space industry and I can be part of that world and do all the engineering and the technology that the IET promotes so heavily. And, and that's the real purpose of Engineer a Better World is to look at what else could inspire the, the next generation into what else they could do. So you mentioned competition there. You need our help, right? You want us to get involved. And you talked about a kit. What can we do? How can listeners get a part of this? Yeah, absolutely. So the IET, um, we run a competition every single year called Engineer a Better World. This year is the competition, so Moon United. So we're asking children between the ages of four and 13 to design their own Moon United football kit. So what you think the football kit would look like. We've got two age categories, so four to seven and between eight and 13. So each one will um, receive a winner and the winners of each of 
those prizes will have their football kit designed in real life. So it will actually bring your design and your thoughts to process. So you can find out more information on the IET's website for Engineer a Better World. You also can enter on there. There's a bunch of other things on there that you can look at career profiles. So you can find out about what I do for a living, how I engineer what I do, as well as other engineering resources. And it's a really, really exciting thing to do to try and encourage kids to think about what they could do in the future engineering and technology space. Wow. So get designing that Moon United kit. Sophie Harker, thank you so much for joining us. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. For this week's Dangerous Dan, where we look at some of the most mean, wild and strange things in the universe, we are looking at a mushroom with one of the most devastatingly brilliant names in the world. Now, you might have heard that a lot of mushrooms can be very dangerous. You have to be extremely careful if you're outside. Something small and funny looking, something that seems like it could give Super Mario a power-up, could really not be nice or powerful at all. Well, powerful by being deadly. The Destroying Angel is one of those. It grows all over Europe. In woods, particularly those woods with a lot of birch trees, it pops up from the ground between July and November all over the continent. And the destroying angel, come on, what a name! Something so saintly and something so sinister. It's got a long white stem with a wide hat on the top. It contains deadly amatoxin poisons. And if you even take a single bite of this, effects are seen about a day after eating with vomiting, diarrhoea. It means it's coming out of both ends. You get severe stomach pains and the problem is you start to feel better. But you couldn't be further from being healthy if it's not sorted. It can poison your liver and kidneys and then everything will end for you. They say that just a piece of the destroying angel in a soup can kill everyone who eats it. That's how powerful this saintly and sinister destroying angel is. We've talked a lot about space this week on the show. Let's go up there one more time, shall we? With Deep Space High, a series from the smartest school in the solar system. This is our Space for All series. We're looking at the different types of careers available in space exploration. It's not just about being an astronaut. In this episode, we're checking in with Professor Pulsar and the gang up there to find out what sort of jobs you can get in space if you love PE. Deep Space High, Space for All. Quiet down, you lot. This term, I want to talk to you about what jobs you might want to do when you're a bit older and what you might have to study to get there. Right, who's first? Sam, what's your dream job? That's the trouble. I haven't got a clue. Well, we know that. (laughs) I mean... I love being here, and a job in space sounds amazing, but I just don't think I'm cut out to be, well, a rocket scientist. Rocket scientists and astronauts aren't the only people working in space exploration. Whatever your interests are, there's a job in space for you. Who here's got a hobby? Anyone want to kick things off? Quark loves kicking off. His favourite lesson is sport. I guess he might have to come down to Earth for his dream job. It's quite hard to play football in zero gravity, even with six legs. (laughs) And that's where you're wrong. Whatever subject you love, whatever your interests and hobbies might be, there's a career for you in space. But football? Really? Yes, really. Sport and fitness experts are a crucial part of space travel and living in space. Come on, I'll show you. Computer, swimming pool, simulation. With no 
more gravity in space, you need to get used to the feeling of being nearly weightless. And where better than in water? For many years, astronauts have trained in special pools called neutral buoyancy pools, practicing everything from spacewalks to making snacks. Have a try just walking about. Go on. It's quite hard to move around underwater. Nothing quite goes where you want it to. It must take them ages to get anything done. This is knackering. It does take some getting used to. Seeing as how I'm in a good mood, I'll zap us all onto dry land. End simulation. People called sports scientists and fitness experts design training programs and make sure that anyone going into space are in the best condition before liftoff and continue to stay fit when in space. But how can you exercise when there's no gravity? The balls will just disappear into space. Computer, zero-g simulation, fitness suite. Well, this is weird. This treadmill has straps to hold me down. It's very tiring. Looks like Quark would do better in zero-g than you, Sam. That's because he's fitter by the look of it. He's got six legs. <laughs> uh, fair point. OK, treadmill's off, everyone. But haven't astronauts got more important things to do than work out? Our bodies aren't built for space. They're built for a planet a lot like our Earth. Bones, heart, lungs, muscles, they all change in weightlessness. They all become weaker as they no longer have to work against gravity. And the longer you stay in space, the more noticeable the changes will be. Especially when you're back on good old terra firma. Uh, that doesn't sound good. Don't worry. Sports scientists are experts in knowing how bodies change as gravity changes. They design and monitor astronauts' training every step of the way. And they use tethered treadmills and cycling machines to help keep muscles in good condition. So, Quark, you can see sport and fitness fans like you are a vital member of the space team. <laughs> Next time, I'll be asking some more of you about your hobbies and interests. It's not impossible that they'll give you some ideas about other jobs in space, Sam. Although it seems impossible to get you lot to leave a room quietly. Deep Space High, space for all. With support from the UK Space Agency. Find out more at funkislive.com slash space. And that is it for this week's episode of the Fun Kids Science Weekly. Thank you so much for listening. If you have anything science that you want answered, make sure you leave it as a voice note on the free Fun Kids app or at funkidslive.com. That way I can hear whatever you want to know. Also, we've got loads of brilliant series, podcasts on Google, Apple, Spotify, wherever you get your shows. You can get bonus episodes of them too by subscribing at Fun Kids Podcasts Plus. There is another bonus episode of this show coming out very soon indeed. And Fun Kids, we are a children's radio station from the UK. Listen all over the country at funkidslive.com. Hello everyone, I'm Cressida Cowell, author of How to Train Your Dragon, and I'm just popping in to tell you about my new book series, Which Way to Anywhere. It's a story about four children who discover that there are alternative worlds beyond our own, and that they can travel to them with the help of a magical map and a very special gift. Of course, this leads to epic, unexpected adventures. Which Way to Anywhere and its sequel, Which Way Round the Galaxy, are both available to buy now. Happy reading!